And I know that you probably didn't think this day would come, but this is the last sermon in this series of living the Christ life. Now, if you amen that, you're not saved, okay? Let's make that clear right up front. But I am excited about what the Lord has, has put on my heart about where we need to go next, what we need to look at. I have no doubt that this year is going to revolutionize our love for the church, our love for Christ, and how he has equipped us to do great things. Romans 8 is about glory. It's about glorification. It's about everything that is already ours based on nothing that we have done. What I love, I don't know if I want to use the word love. I got real excited. Yeah, see? We, we moved here on May 27th of 2017. And it was a long trip. It was a three-car deal. I'm driving a U-Haul. I can just feel the back of it, you know, doing this thing. We had a trailer hooked onto the full-size U-Haul just for my books. Some of you remember that. You said, well, what's in here? I said, my books. They said, what else? I said, nothing. But you can feel it all doing this. It was a hard day, a lot going on. And Jerry and Cindy were nice enough to let us stay at their house because the home that we had bought wasn't ready yet. And Jerry said, let me take you somewhere. And so Beth and I, Nathaniel, and our three friends who had volunteered to make the trip with us, and he took us to Paul Bunyan. And I still have the picture of all of us at the table. And we didn't know what had happened. Like, did we move to heaven? I'm not for sure. I mean, we, we drove a long way, but I think we crossed the barrier into the celestial realm somewhere. Warm cinnamon donuts? I don't know whose idea that was. Probably the Holy Spirit's. But good gravy. Getting in the door is a good thing. Sitting down at the table is a greater thing. That's exactly what God has for us. Everybody gets in the door. Everybody gets to enjoy the beginning. But if you want to sit down at the table, and he invites us to, you can. But it will cost us. It doesn't cost us anything to be there. That was all paid by Jesus. When we talk about the in Christ location, that is already the guaranteed stamp of your presence before him. But when God looks at our lives and says, you know what? What I've already given you is great. But I want to give you more. Do you want it? 
Do you want it? I'm asking you. Do you want everything that God has in store for you? You don't have to answer that out loud. But if you do, I do. How do you get it? I mean, here's the, here's, here's the great thing. God's doing this, right? He's asking you to come get it. Do you want it? It's yours. Yeah. So God is going to not just prepare us, equip us, but he's even going to allow for and set up the circumstances in order for us to step through so that we can break ground into deeper experiences with him. One of the greatest problems that I see across churches in America is that somehow we think that the words just stay on the page. That it's really good to know, and it is good to know, don't get me wrong, I'll never frown upon Bible doctrine. But doctrine was not given in a vacuum. God is not saying, well, you know what? You guys just had this incredible brain power where you were able to ingest all the little finite details. Sorry, finite? Is that right? Intissimal? What am I trying to say? The minutia of the word, the little bits and pieces. But if it never blossomed into love, if it never shot forward in how we parent, if it never brings out the idea of how we treat a co-worker, if Jesus' death on the cross never influences how I answer a question, what has doctrine done? Would you lie to get out of a hard time? Don't answer that out loud. told in Hebrews 12, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And this is a truth that will forever blow me away. Jesus would rather die than sin. That's how serious sin is before the Father. Here's why I'm, I'm harping all these things, trying to tie them together. Is because the difficult circumstances in life, they're going to come. It's going to happen. Church, we're getting ready to face craziness. I don't know if you've licked your theological finger and put it to the wind, but it's coming. And there are going to be choices to be made. Right now, a man named Dr. James Coates, C-O-A-T-E-S, is sitting in prison in Canada because he opened up his church to have public meetings. And they arrested him, and they put him in prison. And when it came time for the hearing of his bail, the judge said, we're not even going to hear it. And he's going to sit there until his trial in May. Here's where we're going. If you came for Hallmark Jesus, you came to the wrong building. Because our faith is serious, and if it is true... It will cost us. Now here's what we've got to do. We have got to get beyond the temporal and look to the eternal. 
It may cost me now, but it gives way to a greater scope of glory that we would never see before. And there is no boundary. Understand this, guys. There is no boundary for how deep Jesus wants to take us. There's not. So now how do we deal with this? Paul is actually encouraging us in Romans 8. Stick with it. It's worth it. It is worth it. Let's start here in chapter 8 and verse 13. I know I've read some of this stuff over and over, but I'm going to go ahead and default to the fact that repetition is a good teacher. Now he's talking to believers here. In verse 13 he says, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. And the idea there is you are living in a way that is cultivating death consequences in your life. It is not your ticket is punched and you can live however you want to and there are no consequences. That's oftentimes what I get accused of. Oh, well, you're saying that you can just get saved and believe in Jesus and live however you want. Yeah, I am saying that. And when you live however you want, you're going to face the consequences for it. Because either your sin is going to come back on you or God has no problem spanking you. And yes, he does spank his kids. Nobody legislated him out of that. He spanks his children when they're wayward. So if we are living in a death life, if you want to call it that, you can guarantee that's what you'll get. But notice what he says, but if by the Spirit you are, and here it is, putting to death the deeds of the body, you what? Live. Now think about this real quick. Isn't he talking to Christians? So notice, he's talking about the choices that we make in our lives and what is going to be the fruit that comes out of those things. So either we are living in a path of death that is going to cultivate death, or we've taken up arms against those things that will bring death into our life, and we have mortified them, we have slayed them for the sake of living greater, living more, living abundantly, because that's what he desires. So how do you do that? Look at verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And this is the pivotal question you have to ask. Because Paul brings this up before he concludes this chapter in such a wonderful fashion for a reason. He wants you to ask the question of yourself, are you being led by the Spirit? And yes, this comes down to basic decision making. Choices. What you're going to do, what you're not going to do, what you dabble in, what you don't, what you entertain in life, what you fill your time with. You don't recognize how badly sin has a hold of you until you try to resist it. And then you recognize that there is this angry bear that lives inside of every one of us that wants what we're trying to keep from it and will do everything it can to get all obstacles out of its way. Aren't you thankful that Jesus saved you from you? Thankful he saved me from me? And this is the great thing about the cross, is it doesn't just stop with, well, you're in heaven. Nope. The blood atones and the blood continues forward. 
It paves a path into the presence of God. So, notice what it says. For all who are being led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. If you are being led by the Spirit, you are a son. If you are not being led by the Spirit, but you've believed in Jesus Christ and you have eternal life, you are a child of God, but not a son, because sonship speaks to maturity. And so again, he wants to give you reasons for these things. And let's recap them real quick, okay? If you notice, verse 16, the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. If we're children of God, we're heirs of God. But if we suffer with Christ, we are co-heirs with Christ. And in order to be a co-heir with Christ, meaning all things that are given to him, we are in link with him, and therefore all of those things given to him will also be given to us when he comes to establish his kingdom. That's a good thing. And that is the invitation to go deeper, to go more. A lot of times we don't like suffering. And because we're not willing, or we're just not thinking in the direction of being heavenly minded in the midst of opposition or persecution or what have you, we lose out on the opportunities to hold God's hand so that he can take us deeper down this glorious path. Paul warns us up ahead, it's going to come. But take it. Don't pass it off. Don't shrink back. Embrace it. Well, that's hard to do. It's only hard to do if your value system is skewed. What do you value most? Everybody remember Peter? Everybody remember him? The let me grab a sword and cut off your ear guy? Which he's either the most amazing target in the world or he's the worst target in the world, let's be honest. Anybody know how he died? Upside down. Do you know what he had to endure before they crucified him? He had to watch his wife die. And they crucified her right side up. And his words to her were, remember the Lord, remember the Lord, remember the Lord, remember the Lord. Could you do that? Preacher, this is way too serious this morning. I don't know about you, but I I can't remember a time in my life when being a Christian wasn't serious. When the idea, when Jesus said, Don't be surprised when the world hates you. They hated me first. I have a hard time of wondering what in the world we thought we were getting into when we come across passages like that. Well, that doesn't apply to today. Let me ask you, believer, what do you see on the horizon? I see trouble coming too, but it's mainly in the form of you, so... It's all right. (laughs) I had to get one in. So verse 18, and I encourage you, hold on to this verse. Memorize this verse. Don't lose this verse. If you're looking to get a tattoo, get this one on your forearm, okay? 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And here's the amazing thing. It's everything that Jesus died for. As glorious as it is that he died to save sinners, as amazing it is, is as selfless as it is, as as loving as it is that he's done that for us, sometimes we let that be the ending point of how we think, not recognizing that he has died and he has loved for so much more. More, more, more. More. Do you want more? That's what this is saying. So whatever you endure right now is considered the tiniest compared to the grand expanse of standing before him and hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master for you were faithful and little and I'm going to put you over much. Can you imagine standing before him saying, I have no regrets. There is no shame. I didn't shrink back. I ran in such a way as to win the prize. These are not go to heaven when you die passages. These are experience the full scope of the glory of God because that's what he wants for you, passages. So whatever you think that we're getting ready to face, in whatever way we're going to be oppressed, or the fact that you just hate Monday, it is not even worth putting in the same conversation as the glory of Almighty God given as a reward to His sons and daughters. He tells us that creation is waiting for this moment. Verse 19. He says, any groaning that you see in creation, any travail, is because it's all pointing to this moment. It has a reason, it has a purpose. And not only that, any groaning or travail that you have right now in your flesh vehicle, it's because it's pointing to this moment. It's all looking for redemption. Any sickness, any suffering, any pain, any hurt, it's all looking for a moment. And he even brings up here in verse 26, when you're faced with, not knowing how to pray because of weakness. Rest assured that the Spirit of God is praying perfectly according to the will of God. And not only that, verse 28, but God is working all things for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. Do you love Him this morning? And are you living out His purpose? Why is that? For those whom He foreknew, and He's giving us a past recollection, for those whom He foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the, son, to the image of his son, that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. In other words, those that he's been previously acquainted with, he's got a call on their life, a destiny that he wants to bring them to. And that destiny is, is that we would more resemble Christ in our lives. Hardship is what brings that about. 
And so what he does is he puts a call on every single person's life asking, will you be faithful to the call I've put on your life? Maybe that keeps you in portage. You know what? That's okay. Why? Because it's God's call. Maybe it takes you out of portage, and that's okay too, because it's God's call. What matters is what God has called you to. And do you know what that is? Those whom he's called, he's also vindicated or justified. He's also made it be shown that because you were faithful, he's brought you into a deeper relationship. And that is what gives way to the greater glory. And then Paul asks a really interesting series of questions. And here's where we are, verse 31. Look what he says. What then shall we say to these things? If God has done all these things to set you up for greater glory, what do you say? What do you say? You say, yeah? You say, amen. You got one of those deep Nashville amens? What do you say to this? Is it exciting? Or does fear still cower over you? Well, you don't want to get too serious about Jesus. You wouldn't want to be a religious fanatic. I mean, let's be honest. Isn't that how people get labeled in order to throw some water on the fire that's burning in you? You don't want to be looked at as a nut job, do you? Anybody ever thought about John the Baptist lately? You know, the guy that lives outside of town, got the strange designer wardrobe, lifted some leather off of an old 58 Chevy and made himself a belt out of it, eating bugs. He's obviously a beekeeper, that guy, remember him? And he's got a pond of water out there that he dunks people in regularly. Is that the weird guy? Yeah. Yeah, what does Jesus tell us? There's none born greater of a woman than John the Baptist. And then he follows that statement up with something incredibly interesting. Yet I tell you, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is still greater than he. Now I hope that blows your mind. Because Jesus lets you know who first place is in the flesh. And then he wants to let you know, but you know what? Eternally in the spirit, even first place in the flesh can't touch last place in the spirit. That's just how great and grand the glory is that awaits us. So what should we say to these things? Are you in? Are you out? Do you rejoice? Are you indifferent? Are you bored? Are you excited? Do you recognize that God wants to use us every day? See, every opportunity is an opportunity, an opportunity to serve him. What then shall we say to these things? Here's this. If God is for us, who's against us? Now, this is one of those moments where you click out the pen and you write, NO ONE, in all caps. Why? Because you are screaming it. That's why. Is God for you? Is God for you? You know what that means? It means that God's on my side. No, it means that you have been graciously placed 
by his side because of Christ. So as long as your purpose is his purpose, he is for you. If the creator is for you, what does the creature have to say? Nothing. This is where he moves that conversation. Look what he says. Verse 32, why? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him? Now watch this here. Please mark it. Freely give us all things. Everybody see freely give? It's ours for the taking. When it's free, don't get me wrong, it costs somebody something somewhere, right? And we know that because of the cross. But the cost is not put on you. It is God with open hands taking everything that Christ died to provide and saying, here, it's yours. Now, does everybody see that he's reasoning from the greater to the lesser? Did Jesus give his son for you? Or sorry, did God give his son for you? Absolutely. So if he gave you the greatest, what small things that keep you from moving forward towards maximum glorification, what little things is he going to leave you high and dry on? That's almost silly, isn't it? It's almost insane to entertain that type of thinking. Wait a second. He gave me the greatest. But I don't know how he's going to deal with this problem I'm facing right now. Does everybody see how lopsided that thinking is? That's unbelief. That is unbelief manifest in our lives. If he took care of your greatest problem, which is complete separation from God because of my willingness to do things that offend him on an eternal level. And God says, even though I am the one offended, I will wipe that slate clean and I will give greatly of myself so that you can freely enter my presence. Guys, if he did that, he can do a lot more. Exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we could ever think or ask. Don't just stop at the cross. Recognize that it goes on and on and on. And if he gave us his son, won't he also supply to you all things? Well, people might not like me. They already don't. That's a harsh reality I have to deal with. They might not like me if I stand up with Jesus. Well, let's be honest, guys. In our cynical world, 65% of people probably already hate us. That's okay. Their hatred for us is is a God issue between them and him. It really has nothing to do with us. But bad things might happen. Okay, so, so what a value do you hold that is greater than God giving his son and supplying all things for you? What is worth saying no to a deeper walk with Christ and just being content to sit inside the doorway? I don't understand that. In fact, when we talk about it out loud, I hope that it it registers with your mind through your ears. It doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense. 
Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect, against God's chosen ones, his choice ones? Who's going to bring a charge against you? The government? Probably. Your neighbor? Probably. Someone who got offended? Probably. Gosh, we live in a sweet little sensitive society now, don't we? We've even gotten rid of Dr. Seuss. What in the world is going on? How weak are people to feel so threatened by a children's author? We live in a whack world. Our world is whack. It is just the beginning, but man. All it takes is somebody getting the slightest bit offended. And now we're filing lawsuits. Bring an accusation against you. Guess what? Everybody will. Here's the great thing that Scripture's telling us. It doesn't matter. Why? Because I love the answer that Paul gives. Notice it doesn't say, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Everybody. So let's just be quiet. And let's just keep our religion to ourselves. It exists in this top compartment and everywhere down here is where people really live. And this is just private and down here is public. Don't buy into that two-tier system. That was designed by Satan. If God's word is true, it's true for all of life. It applies to every part of life. He's got something to say. And when he says it, it's authoritative. And he says it because he knows what he's talking about, regardless of what expert with however many letters after their name wants to tell you on CNN. Stop caring. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. In other words, God's the one who bangs the gavel. Doesn't matter what earthly judge with an agenda has to say about anything. When it's all over and done with, the verdict is rendered by Yahweh. Somebody wearing a black robe, somebody wearing a white robe. Notice what it says after that, verse 34. Who's the one who condemns? Now this is interesting because this actually is a Greek word that deals with the idea of a verdict rendered in a courtroom. You've been condemned. Talk about how government leaders issue a statement that condemns the actions of a certain party doing this and that. Know that? Who condemns you? Again, couldn't the answer be, well, the world, well, the school system, well, my family, well, my job? It could be, couldn't it? Paul could have wrote all that in there. But here's the great thing. Paul is not thinking earthly-minded. Nope, there's not a charge that can be brought against us. Why? Because God is the one who justifies us, and there's not condemnation that can be rendered against us. Why? Look what he says. Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. In other words, he didn't just take care of the sin problem on the cross, but obviously the work was satisfying to the Father of which he was raised again. And this is what we talk about, his life living through us, the Christ life. And not only that, but he was also raised at the right hand of God. That's the privileged position from the ascension, who also, what's the word? 
intercedes with you. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but back in verse 26, 27 there, the Spirit intercedes for us, yes? Notice that Jesus is also on his knees for you as well. Do you recognize that two-thirds of the Trinity is always praying for you? Always. Because let's be honest, when we start getting condemned, we lose sight of eternity, don't we? We lose sight of heavenly things. We get very bombarded with the temporal and we start making choices where we start, dare say, backsliding? Can we say that? We're not even a Baptist church. Can we say that word? Backsliding. Capitulating. Falling away. Man, that's dangerous ground. This is why Paul is trying to give us a beginning glimpse into the glory that awaits. No one can condemn you. Why? Because Christ is your advocate. He already stood in that place. And if he's already stood in that place and he's taken your condemnation, what else is there to condemn? Why? Because your life is hidden with Christ in God. And it all comes back to who you are in Christ. Notice what it says here. Verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Now here's the great thing. Whereas before, when we're told, well, who's going to bring an accusation against you? Who's going to bring a charge against you? We could bring up some earthly reasons, but notice Paul's pointing us heavenly-minded. No, no, it's God who justifies you. Well, who could condemn us? Oh, well, I can think of this person, this person, when I get earthly-minded, but no, 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 no. He wants to tell us, no, wait, Christ Jesus took that for you, and so you can't be condemned. But here's the great question where you can't even get a worldly answer in there with a shoehorn. Watch this. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Let me ask you a question. What earthly thing can ever separate you from the love of Christ? Nothing. See, here's the amazing thing is we don't even have to get heavenly minded on this because we've already solved the whole idea with earthly minded things. Now that sounds weird and backwards, but it's true. There's not one thing that is in existence, whether seen or unseen, whether natural or supernatural, whether earthly or heavenly or hellish that can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. Not one thing. Nothing. Nothing. This means that Christ loves you so perfectly. He has enveloped you in his love so completely that nothing can get in there. Nothing can begin to break that away. Any of you ever filled out a check to pay your electric bill and you sealed the envelope before you stuck it in there? And you're like, good grief! And you're thinking, I'm an imbecile. Anybody know what I did this week? But man, is it not an example? The love of Christ must have my electric bill, you know? Because nothing can get in there. Because he perfectly envelops it. Watch this. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, hardships, and trials? No. Distress? I mean, distress. I'm, I'm okay with stress. Why has it got to be distress? Can stress separate you? Let's do this. Can stress separate you? No. Let's answer, church. This is a good thing. What about persecution? No. 
No mental anguish, no pressure, no harassment, no oppression. How about famine, starvation? Can that separate you from the love of Christ? No. How about nakedness? I ain't got no clothes on. You're still covered in the love of Jesus. How about peril? That's when you're in the midst of complete danger and risk. No. How about the sword? You know what that means? Certain death. Your earthly time of life is over. No. Everybody notice that these are earthly things that try to raise the accusation. And Paul's like, think about these things. Nothing's going to separate you. And so what does he do? Of course, as any good New Testament writer, he quotes the Old Testament. Just as it's written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. In other words, we experience suffering. And notice, for your sake, for God's sake, because he's worth it, we suffer all day long. And look what he says after that. We were considered a sheep to be slaughtered. We were done for. But here it is, but in all these things, in all the things mentioned before, notice what he says, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Notice that loved is brought up again, but it lets us know something. You already have a power to be a super hyper overcomer. It's already resting in you. Why? Because it's Christ's power. This Greek word is an incredibly interesting word. It's the only time that it occurs in the New Testament. But it's made up of two different words. Hyper, can you imagine what that word means? Just watch my son after church. That's what it means. That kid's got more energy than I've ever seen in my life. My wife told me yesterday, she's like, he was just running in circles and his mouth wouldn't stop talking. That's just what he does. Good grief. I don't know. Anyway, hyper, super, right? And then you have this really interesting Greek word, nikiomen, which is actually where we get the word Nike from. And it's a word that means to overcome or to conquer. So when you see in Revelation 2 and 3, but to he who overcomes, I will give him a stone with a name written which no one else knows. I will grant for him to sit on my throne. And it's often associated in a means, that word is, with the idea of running a faithful race, of getting the privilege of receiving the reward because you've gone through the mud. That's what this is getting at. Notice what it says again. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. In every situation, the ability resides in you and I because of everything but you and I to overwhelmingly be victorious in every situation through him who loved us. Notice it's got to be through him. It's not my way. It's not, well, I'm just going to bang up to this point, but I've had it. A lot of times I want to do that. And then go on about my own thing and try to rationalize my own thing. No, 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 no. And then here's what's great is he moves into the unseen. Verse 38, for I'm convinced, I'm fully persuaded that neither death nor life. Can you see death? Can you see life? You cannot see these things. You can see people who are alive, but you can't actually see the essence of these things. Nor angels nor principalities, which are a ranking of angels or celestial beings, nor things present right now, nor things to come, the future, nor 
powers, another ranking of celestial beings, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Put it on the table. Regardless of what it is, regardless if you want to call it, regardless if your situation is unique, there's not one thing that you encounter that causes the love of Christ to disappear. It won't even budge. Now, give me three minutes to get nerdy with you. Is that okay? Let's do this. If you're somebody that's writing stuff down, let me give you two interesting words that will help you. The first word is the word inclusio. Let me give that to you. This is, this is partial hermeneutics class right now. And here's what an inclusio is. Just write the word inclusion and leave the N off, okay? Inclusio, it is a phrase that occurs twice within a book that indicates the start and the end of a section. It is a phrase that occurs twice within a book that indicates the start and end of a section. So it is a literary device that the author has used because he wants to grab your attention and bring you to a point where you're really focusing on something grand, okay? So now, let me give you the for instance of where the inclusio is. Everybody see verse 35? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Everybody see that? Now drop down to 39. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Does everybody see how those stand as two bookends? Okay? Now here's what else is interesting. Not only is it an inclusio that brings this up, it's also a chiasm. C-H-I-A-S-M. A chiasm. Okay? And here's what this is. A literary structure which includes a reversal of clauses for emphasis. Aren't you glad you came to church today? This is deep, heavy, spirit-filled stuff, right? Here it is. Watch this. Go to the next slide, please. When you look at this passage, you actually find that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was setting this up in such a way as to where it moves in and it comes back because he wants to get one major focus on your mind. What is the thing that he could say that could really stick it with the believer in Christ who might be thinking about falling away from the faith because of opposition and hardship? So notice you've got this rank. You've got A, B, C, B apostrophe, and A apostrophe. And how this moves in and comes out, whatever the middle section is, is the thing that the author wanted to emphasize to you under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So notice the A and the A apostrophe mirror one another because it talks about the separate us from the love of God. Then right here, uh, nothing can separate us. Then you've got the B and the B apostrophe because you have earthly things that he asked the question of, and then you have heavenly unseen things that he asked the question of. Everybody see how that works? They parallel one another. So the grand idea that he wants you to get in the middle is the C. And all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. You know what that tells me? It tells me that when you're tempted to give up, he wants you to have on your mind, I am a super victor through Christ. When the world wants to come against you so that you will just shut up, keep your place, don't say anything, pay your taxes, and die a quiet person, no. I am going to share the gospel. I'm going to disciple people. I'm going to speak up what it needs to be. I'm actually going to declare that if you have a certain part of genitalia, that you actually are that sex, and nothing can ever wipe that out because God designed it that way. 
I'm not going to fall prey to this worldly solution and all this threading that Satan has been doing. He is the greatest crocheter in the world. Look at all the junkies crocheting. And it's all sin, it's all wrong, it's all in denial of truth, and the world loves it when the church will just be quiet or finally get with it and get on their side. You know what this tells me? Christ has given me a better way out. And if that better way out is death to the body, then praise God for all the glory to be to him. Now, I want this to be a positive note. And depending on where your mindset is right now, it either will or it won't be. And I hope that that testifies to something about the spirit and the conscience inside of you. This life is not where it's at. This is not where it ends. This body is all that it is. It's just a body that fails and does wrong and has problems. You guys realize that sometimes when I read up close now, i got to take my glasses off? 43 years old. How did I get that way? You guys realize that I'm having to shave hair off my ear? <laughs> Trimming nose hairs? What in the world is going on? And you know what I do foolishly? I sit there and look in the mirror and I'm like, surely this will get better. And then I look at each other and I go, I close my eyes so I don't have to see it. Guys, we break down. We fail. And I'm just talking about physically. Christ wants to live his life through us and he has given this word to renew this mind. Right now we are jars of clay. And we may get broken. It's okay. It gives way to greater glory. Let me finish with this. If you don't have this book, I encourage you to get it. Fox's Book of Martyrs. I want to read to you about a guy named Polycarp. This is right after 100 AD. Here's the account, brief account of his life. It says, Polycarp, who was a student of the Apostle John and the overseer of the church in Smyrna, heard that soldiers were looking for him and tried to escape, but was discovered by a child. After feeding the guards who captured him, he asked for an hour in prayer, which they gave him. He prayed with such fervency that his guards said that they were sorry that they were the ones who captured him. Nevertheless, he was taken before the governor and condemned to be burned in the marketplace. Who can condemn him? No one. It's Christ Jesus who stands in his place. After his sentence was given, the governor said to him, Reproach Christ and I will release you. Way out. There's a door that's open. Polycarp answered, 86 years I have served him and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? In the marketplace, he was tied to the stake rather than nailed, as was the usual custom, because he assured them he would stand immovable in the flames and not fight them. Why? Because this earthly life didn't matter. He says here, 
as the dry sticks placed around him were lit, the flames rose up and circled his body without touching him. The executioner was then ordered to pierce him with the sword. When he did, a great quantity of blood gushed out and put out the fire. I mean, does God have a sense of humor or what? That's just as good as it gets right there. Although his Christian friends asked to be given his body as it was so they could bury him, the enemies of the gospel insisted that it be burned in the fire, which was done. Can you imagine hating someone who stood for Jesus so much that you're like, yeah, we're not even going to give him a proper burial. We're just going to burn him and burn him and burn him and burn him. Let me ask you a question, guys. What can this world do to the body? Nothing. And when you think about it, it doesn't matter. We're just passing through. And if Christ isn't living his life in me, it's not a life worth living. Let's pray. Father, thank you that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. That whatever obstacle we feel that hinders us from being obedient to your will, faithful in your call, rejoicing in your truth, those things that try to steal our joy, they cannot get between the Savior's love for us. Because of Him, in Him, and through Him, we are overwhelming, victorious conquerors. I don't even know how to put all that into words of what it is. But it's super abounding. It's hyper overcomer regardless of the situation. Maybe church is just our Sunday thing. Maybe Jesus is just our help at a time of need and not our Lord. The other moments. Father, your desire for your children is incredible and Jesus has paid for it all. I pray, Lord, you would give us a glimpse into the great glory that you have in store beyond what is normally seen, but something to be experienced in the here and now. I don't know, a a creation in our heart that propels us forward, that the Holy Spirit would provoke us and remind us constantly it's worth it because Christ has secured it. Any hardship or failure that we deal with, any tribulation that we come across, God, may all these things be laid at your feet as considered unworthy of our lives because Christ is infinitely worthy of all things. We pray it in his name. Amen.